0: about I'm uh, about to do here but uh, this is somebody who never calls attention to himself and uh, sure enough if I do this for this person somebody's going to say well why didn't you do that for me but Joel's family is here because it's Joel's 70th birthday today Joel's a guy who never calls attention. You know, sometimes he'll slip out of town to Iraq, and we don't even know it until he's gone. And uh, so so I think it's worth doing and, and uh, blessing Joel today. Good to have his family here and good to have our brother. And, and boy, he doesn't look anywhere close to 70, does he? I'm 60, and I hope I look as good as Joel when I'm 61. So anyway. Let's look at Mark chapter... 11, verses 7 through 11. Joel read an account of Palm Sunday. I'm going to read a different account. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. Pay attention to this part. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here we see the king of kings, Jesus, on what we've come to call Palm Sunday. And for the first time in this account, Jesus is really accepting the praise of his subjects, though there's a lot of evidence that many people didn't even really understand what was happening that day. We see Jesus being warmly received by the crowd, but this was just the start of, as Joel mentioned a moment ago, of the most significant week in human history. And though Jesus was worshiped that day, the week didn't end there. It was just the beginning. And that- Oh, my goodness. Sales pitches right here at TCF. Now, now, how many of you, thank you to the Thorpe family players. Now, how many of you, assuming you, that you didn't quickly figure out that this was staged to make a point, how many of you would have thought that if this was really happening, somebody getting up in the middle of the service starting to sell stuff, You would think it's incredibly inappropriate at best, very out of place, maybe rude. I thought all those things. How about sacrilegious? Would it make you mad? Would it make you mad if it was a real thing? Well, if it would make you mad, apparently you're in very good company because Jesus had a similar reaction in his first recorded public act the day after Palm Sunday, the reception he got along the road that we marked today. In verse 11, we get a hint of what's to come. That's why I told you to pay attention to Mark 7, 11, following Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The first place Jesus went after arriving in Jerusalem was to the temple, the place he called his father's house. Even back when he was only 12 years old, you read that in Luke 2, 49, Jesus said, this is my father's house. Verse 11 of Mark 11 says he looked around at everything. That's all it says. But what do you think he saw? Why is it important that Jesus looked around at everything that day that he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? Well, we find out exactly why it's important, what he observed on that Palm Sunday, because of what's recorded when Jesus came back to the temple the very next day and what happened then. Apparently, What Jesus saw when he looked around on that Palm Sunday and then when he returned the next day provoked him to anger. Did you know that Jesus cleared out the temple twice? Some of you know that. On two different occasions. For example, in John chapter 2, we'll read that account. It's a similar episode, and it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. Because of when it takes place and because of the details present, most scholars believe that this was a separate incident. So we see that twice Jesus cleared out the temple for the same basic reasons. And if it did happen twice, which I think it did, we can see that the merchants apparently didn't learn their lesson the first time. They didn't take Jesus' anger very seriously that time because here they are doing it all over again. Now, Jesus didn't get angry often. So that says to me that we need to pay attention to this. Well, first of all, his anger is nothing like our anger. His anger is always a righteous anger. Sometimes we can have righteous anger, but most of the time we don't. His anger isn't like the selfish anger that I have when I get cut off in traffic or when somebody wrongs us or when somebody insults us or when somebody hurts us in some way. That makes us angry, but that's not always righteous anger. The only other time it's recorded that Jesus was angry was in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He looked around at them in anger, it says there, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. So it seems at least Jesus was angry at stubborn hearts. We see that in the verse in Mark we just read. Hearts that refuse to believe or hearts that refuse to listen. And we see that he was angry with those stubborn hearts when they interfered in some way with true worship of a holy God. It's important for us to examine because Jesus got angry so seldom. And so we need to understand what prompted his anger. So we're going to examine that in depth. So let's look at what happened the next day. This is the first day. This is the day after Palm Sunday, okay? The day after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the beginning of what we call Holy Week. We read in Mark chapter 11, just a few verses later, verses 15 through 17, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So we're going to drive the Thorpe family players out of here because they were buying and selling here. No, they were just doing what I asked them to do. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches Of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. So, why, considering all that was about to take place in this coming week, why in the world was the first thing that Jesus did in public that week this angry outburst at the temple? Why was this so important that Jesus made such a big deal out of it, a public scene? And he also didn't just do it, but he did it while he was angry. Why would he make a scene like this when there was so much to say, there was so much to do prior to going to his destiny, to going to the cross on Good Friday, to his death? So let's take some time this morning to look at what Jesus called my father's house. Because after all, Jesus laid public claim to it, like we noted a moment ago, when he was just 12 years old. And he claimed it on this day when he said, My house. So, why was it important that day, and why is it still important to us today, some 2,000 years later? Well, I believe it's significant that Jesus said specifically, My house. Why is that significant? Because he owns it, he owns it, he's in charge. He makes the rules, and he gets to decide what's appropriate and what's inappropriate in his house. Now, this is a story that we don't often associate with Holy Week. When we think of Holy Week, we think, rightly so, of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, but this happened, and this was, uh, I think it's significant that this took place at the beginning of this historic week. You know why? Jesus didn't do anything by accident. It didn't just happen. It's no accident that Jesus cleared out the temple at the beginning of his ministry, like we read in John, and then again near the end of his ministry, the first day of the last week of his life before his crucifixion. So as the first official act of this week, Jesus was asserting his right, he was asserting his authority, his lordship over the temple. Now it's clear from Scripture that the religious leaders were not happy about this. That's putting it mildly. They weren't happy Jesus was exercising authority in the temple that they saw themselves the leaders of. We read one more verse there in Mark 11. We read verse 18, and it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard this, talking about Jesus clearing the temple, and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. Now let's notice some other things about this scene. Jesus did not specifically condemn the buying and selling that was taking place. Now he might have because some scholars think that the money changers very likely took advantage of those who traveled from far away to worship at the temple. Many biblical historians think that the prices they charged for the sacrificial animals they sold were probably like profiteering. You know what profiteering is? That is, they sold them at exorbitant markups because, again, those who had traveled a long way could get the needed sacrifices in no other way. They had a captive market, so they took advantage of it. it. That's the same reason why when you go to a movie theater, the food costs more. When you go to the airport, the food costs more. When you go to a stadium, food costs more, right? And they don't let you bring your own food, so where else are you gonna get it? At its extreme, it's what we call price gouging today. So for example, you have a hurricane in Louisiana and gasoline is scarce, but you, at your station, you have gas to sell, so you charge $5 a gallon to sell it. And people buy it because you're the only one who has it and you make a huge profit. That was probably happening here too. But it's not what Jesus condemned specifically, though he did see their hearts, and it may have been a part of why he was angry. However, it's also true that the money changers and sellers were in some sense really quite necessary to the whole sacrificial system. Jewish people from other parts of the empire, or even from different towns in Galilee, would have local currencies that needed to be converted to some standard for use in the temple, Further, one was not to bring sacrifices from long distances, but to follow the more convenient prescription of Moses' law by the sacrifices in Jerusalem. So these merchants were really necessary to the whole sacrificial system. But here the issue isn't whether or not the money changing and the selling were appropriate. It was where this took place. It took place in the outer courts of the temple, And this was a place that was set apart for the worship of God. Now, that's a key phrase here when we're talking about holiness, set apart. Remember that phrase, set apart. Now, this was the place that the Gentiles were supposed to be able to worship. So in a very real way, devoting such a significant portion of this space to what amounted to profiteering was also a very poor witness by Israel, to the surrounding world. Remember these things as we make a more personal application to this uh, idea in just a few minutes here. The great Scottish preacher Matthew Henry said this. He said, "'Lawful things, ill-timed and ill-placed, may become sinful things. That which was decent enough in another place, and not only lawful but laudable on another day, defiles the sanctuary, and profanes the Sabbath. This buying and selling and changing money, those secular employments, had the pretense of being for spiritual purposes. So we begin to understand Jesus' anger here just a little bit better. When we look at the scriptures he quoted, now think about this. First he quotes Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. We're also going to take a look at verse 6 to give us just a little bit of context here. Listen carefully to this. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. So there we get the phrase that Jesus used, house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what Jesus was quoting there. So, in Isaiah's time and in Jesus' time, the temple was God's house. And as Jesus quoted, it wasn't just for the Jews, it was also for the Gentiles, it was for all nations. It was for the beginning of that passage in verse 6 where it said, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him. As Isaiah said, So today in our time, God's house is no longer a church building or a temple. Now, that doesn't mean that a place of worship isn't special in any sense at all. But it's not the only place that God meets us. It's not where He lives anymore. And that's why we don't routinely call this room that we're in this morning a sanctuary. Now, sometimes we slip because of habit and we say that, and that's okay. We don't want to be legalists here or the word policeman but we're intentional in trying to refer to this room that we're sitting in this morning as the auditorium and not the sanctuary because the sanctuary in the Old Testament was the place where God was visibly present. In the Old Testament, it was the place of what they called the Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God. Now, this room can be that, but it's not the only place where we might see God at work, where God might manifest his presence that's because now you and I we are the temple of God we as followers of Christ are the dwelling place that God has chosen he first dwelt in the old testament tabernacle and then when Jesus came he set up a tabernacle among us we read in John chapter 1 verse 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or made his dwelling among us. And now, after his ascension into heaven, and after the coming of the Holy Spirit, his tabernacle is here. It's in the human heart. It's in us. It's in your heart. It's in my heart as we are in Christ. So let's remember this truth, even as we consider some other aspects of this passage. Making a way for Jesus to tabernacle, if you will, in us is one of the things that Jesus set in motion at the end of the Holy Week with his death and with his resurrection, which we'll celebrate together next Sunday. Now, here's a key verse in teaching this truth that we're looking at this morning. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Some of you know this. Do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Of course, the awful price, the price referred to in this passage of Scripture is the death of Jesus, the crux of human history, which we will mark together this Friday night on Good Friday. So when we begin to think about, when we begin to understand these truths, how they tie things together, and we see what Jesus is saying, and we look a little more closely at the scriptures that he quoted when he cleared out the temple, it opens up a whole new way of looking at this passage. At least it does for me. Maybe I'm thicker-headed than the rest of you, and you've thought of some of these things before. But I've always considered this passage only on its natural meaning, which, of course, is certainly important and true as well. Jesus was stating very important things about our place of worship and our churches, not necessarily the buildings, though that may apply too. There are things that are inappropriate in church. There are things that are inappropriate in connection with a worship service, wherever that worship service happens to be, whether it's in a church building or not. But let's now take a look at the second passage of Scripture that Jesus referenced, and let's dig just a little bit deeper into this. Now, the second passage of Scripture that Jesus quoted was from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And again, to give it a little context, we're going to, read from, uh, we're going to also read verses 8 uh, through 11 of this passage. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. And here it is, folks, verse 11. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now there's a lot here, so let's hit just a few highlights. This is called by scholars the temple sermon because it's about the temple, and it's about the people's attitude toward the worship that took place there. And it's also given by the prophet Jeremiah in the gate of the temple. So God sends Jeremiah to the temple, and he wants to confront the false belief that God will let no harm come to the temple, and by extension, he'll let no harm come to the people of Judah. They were putting confidence in the building rather than in the one who lives there. That was the key problem. We read that Jeremiah rebukes the people for their false and worthless religion, their idolatry, and the shameless behavior of the people and their leaders. The themes of this section are false religion, idolatry, and hypocrisy. Jeremiah was almost put to death for this sermon. You can read about that in chapter 26. The people followed a worship ritual but maintained a sinful lifestyle. It was religion without personal commitment to God. This is where the passage can get very personal for each one of us if we're looking for it. It's easy for us to look at Jesus cleansing the temple and think, gee, I would never sell things in a worship service. Gee, I'd never defile God's house in any way. I'd never bring idol worship into the service. I'd never bring false religion. I'd never bring hypocrisy. But remember now, folks, as followers of Christ, you are the temple. I am the temple. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit, the very dwelling place of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I want you to remember a couple of things we noted earlier. But now I want you to think of these things in light of this way of looking at it. That is that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that we noted earlier was Jesus made a point to call the temple my house. He owns it. He's in charge. He makes the rules. And he decides what's appropriate and inappropriate in his house. Now, this was true of the temple the day that Jesus cleared it, the day after what we celebrate today is Palm Sunday. But it's true today, and it's even more true of us Because we're his house. We're his house. He owns this house. He owns this house because he paid for it with his life. And we, as followers of Jesus, accepted that gift of salvation. So he's in charge, folks. He makes the rules. And just as he decided on that day what was appropriate and not appropriate in his house, God's temple, he decides what's appropriate in this house. We also noted that Jesus, in clearing the temple, was asserting his right, his authority over the temple. I think he does that for us today, too. He asserts his right to say, here's what can happen in this house that I own, and here's what shouldn't happen. He doesn't do it in anger, as he did that day, but I think it's important for us to remember that the defiling of his temple, disregarding the holiness of his temple, The set-apartness, remember we talked about how that's an important concept, the set-apartness, it's an important part of what holiness means. That did, in fact, make him angry the day he cleared the temple. But he absorbed all that righteous anger on the cross later that week. And the way he asserts his authority over these temples, you and me, the way he asserts his authority over these temples is when he disciplines us when he allows circumstances into our lives that mold and shape us into his image. He loves us enough to do that, to share in his holiness, to be set apart for his use. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, God disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. He still has authority over his temple. We belong to him. He has a right because we belong to Him. He has a right to do what it takes to make us into His image by accepting Jesus as the Lord of our lives, and we've accepted and granted that He has that right too. So to practically apply, apply this to us, what are we doing? What are we doing to turn His house, Jesus' house, the temple of the Holy Spirit, into a house of prayer for all nations? Are we Are thinking of it in this idea of us as being the temple It makes me think of the old Keith Green song, also recorded by 2nd Chapter of Acts, recorded by other different artists. And here's some of the lyrics here. Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. That's God deciding what we do in our temple. That's our prayer. That's a prayer from this temple to God to make us into the image of God and likeness of Christ. And the flip side is, what are we doing to turn his house, Jesus' house, into a den of thieves? That's the other thing he said. Let's look again briefly at the passage of Scripture that Jesus quoted. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7 first. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain And give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So, we look at a couple things in this passage, and we might ask, how are we binding ourselves to the Lord? The Hebrew here means to unite, to remain, to cleave, to join. It's another way of saying fully devoted, fully committed. These are the people God gives joy to, it says in this passage of Scripture. God gives joy to these people in his house of prayer. Then we can look again at that passage from Jeremiah that we read earlier in the NIV. I want to read it now in the New Living because it just lends a little bit more clarity. Do you think that because the temple is here, you will never suffer? Don't fool yourselves. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and worship Baal and all those other new gods of yours and then... Come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, We are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again? Do you think this temple which honors my name is a den of thieves? I see all the evil going on there, says the Lord. So remember now, we're not only looking at this as the Old Testament temple, the people to whom Jeremiah was speaking about the Old Testament temple where sacrifices took place, where God lived among his people. We're remembering now the New Testament understanding, the new covenant which declares us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in that light, let's look again at this passage which Jesus quoted where he cleared the temple the day after Palm Sunday. Let's answer that rhetorical question that Jeremiah asked in verse 8. Do you think that because the temple is here, you will never suffer? What had happened is that the people of the tribe of Judah had begun to treat the temple like a good luck charm. They'd seen God deliver his people against incredible odds because of the temple's presence in their midst. But they forgot why God lived there in that very specific way. He lived there because he loved them and the people were following him. But by the time Jeremiah preached this message, they'd lost so much of that. They were instead by that time stealing and murdering and lying and committing adultery and worshiping idols. So what God's saying here, how can you expect the temple to protect you when you're dishonoring my house by sinning like this? We can ask ourselves the same question. He was saying to uh, Jeremiah was saying to the people, You're dishonoring my name, you're dishonoring this holy place. You want the protection of a holy place without any evidence of holiness in your own life. And then the key question Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? In essence, Jeremiah was preaching that in their use of the temple, using the temple as this kind of a good luck charm to protect themselves, they were turning it into something like a safe place for robbers. That's pretty sobering. I don't know about you. I think that's pretty sobering, especially, again, when we look at the New Testament concept that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah and Jesus, in quoting Jeremiah, was pointing out how absurd this whole idea is. You expect my protection, and here you are desecrating this temple with your sin. Again, quoting Matthew Henry. If they knew anything, either of the temple of the Lord or of the Lord of the temple, they must think that to plead that either an excuse of their sin against God or an arrest of God's judgment against them was the most ridiculous, unreasonable thing that could be. God is a holy God, but this plea made him the patron of sin, of the worst of sins, which even the light of nature condemns. Now, the attitude of the people that Jeremiah was speaking to might be what we would call in our common vernacular, in your face. In your face. But it's really scary when you consider it because it's kind of like saying, in your face to God. If if I'm near you when you say in your face to God, I want to step away for fear that lightning might strike you. I don't want to say something like that. Here's a people in sin, and yet they're claiming the rights and the privileges and the protections of followers of God in his holy temple. This is why I really believe that we can take this account of Jesus clearing the temple in two ways. And we've noted both these, but let me recount them. Of course, we can read it in its natural and obvious way. As an admonition to treat the things of God worship services, and even to some degree, even a New Testament understanding, the church itself. We want to treat these things as things we respect, things that are free from commercialism, free from marketing the gospel. We try to do that here at TCF. We try to keep this time that we're together in this place safe from sales pitches or merchandising. That's another sermon altogether. But it's clearly part of what Jesus was saying to us in clearing the temple from the money changers, and from the merchants. The gospel's not for sale, folks. The gospel's not for sale. And to do this in any way is to defile his church. But I also think that we can take this passage as a call to personal holiness. And this is how this passage convicted me as I was studying and preparing for this message this week. Remembering that today, as followers of Christ, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And reading Jeremiah's sermon here reminded me of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, addressing in some ways kind of the same issue. He wrote to the Romans in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Jesus saves us to change us, folks. He saves us to change us. He dwelt among the people of Israel to change them. Just as the people of Judah thought that having God in their midst somehow exempted them from being concerned about holiness at all, from living changed lives somehow protected them from the consequences, the temporal, earthly consequences of sin, Paul also recognized that the grace of the new covenant could be seen by some as a license to sin, when that grace was meant not just to save us, but again, to change us. So he wrote this to the Romans, with the same level of shock and surprise that the people could think that way, that Jeremiah expressed in his Jeremiah ad to the people. Those who continue in sin because grace has increased some way try to make God the protector and even the minister of sin. So Jesus' question, has this become a den of robbers? And Paul's question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? They're very similar questions if you think about it. Both answered in the same way. By no means. Can't happen. No way, no how. May it never be. At the temple, God saw not only their holy worship, but their unholy behavior. So if God can see that in the Israeli Israeli temple, can he not see that in his temple, you and me? External worship practices are empty without a devoted heart. So as we begin this week that we call Holy Week, Let's ask ourselves, what part of our lives are maybe not so holy this week? What other other idols or gods, little g-gods, are present in our lives that take a higher priority in our lives than our devotion to the King of Kings? Now, we don't have to worship golden calves to be idol worshipers. If you're a Christ follower and you put the pursuit of anything or anyone else Before your relationship to Jesus, God may just choose to take away those things until you turn to him. There's a story told about a pastor named Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he was counseling a young woman on the sidewalk in front of a church following an evening service, and she said she was a Christian and that she wanted to follow Christ, but she wanted to be famous too. She wanted to pursue a stage career in New York. After I've made it to the theater, then I'll follow Christ completely he told him. Well, Barnhouse took a key out of his pocket, and he scratched a mark on a post box standing on the corner. This is what God will let you do, he said. God will let you scratch the surface of success. He will let you get close enough to the top to know what it is, but he will never let you have it because he will never let one of his children have anything rather than himself. Well, years later, Donald Barnhouse met the same woman again, and she confessed that this had indeed been her life story. She had dabbled in the stage once her picture had been in a national magazine, but she had never quite really made it. And she told Barnhouse, I can't tell you how many times in my discouragement I have closed my eyes and seen you scratching on that postal box with your key. God let me scratch the edges, but he gave me nothing in place of himself. This is true of all of us. Whatever we seek, whoever we seek in place of himself, he won't let us have it. He will give us nothing in place of himself. If we're truly temples of the Holy Spirit, if we're truly a dwelling place for God, just as the temple that Jesus cleared out that day after that first Palm Sunday, then we are set apart. We are set apart for his use. We are set apart for his glory and for no other purpose. If it's true that we're the temple, then we are to be holy. And we cannot live in any sin. And we cannot have any idols take his place because we're bought with a price. And this body we dwell in is not our house. It's his house. Even as Jesus said, it's my father's house. He owns it. We just live here. As I was preparing this message and preparing a closing, I thought of the song, Refiner's Fire. We've sung that here, and it kept coming back to me as I studied this passage. And as the Lord made this portion of scripture, for me at least, a personal call to holiness and set-apartness, if you will. So as we close, let's ponder the lyrics here together prayerfully, and I would ask you to respond as the Lord would have you.